Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Gospel of Matthew series. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have open in your lap a collection of writings that we call the Bible. We think of it as a book, but actually it's more of a library with all sorts of writings in it. Most of it is story, but then there's a ton of poetry, a memoir or two or three, legal code, genealogy, a number of wisdom one-liners that are great, like for 140 characters. There's a play in there, quite a few letters, a number of biographies of Jesus of Nazareth and a few other people, a theological essay or two, a genre of literature we don't even have anymore called apocalyptic. There's a whole lot in here about life after death. Actually, there's very little about that. There's a whole lot about life before death. So much is in here. And this library was written by a number of authors, well into several dozen, not to mention all the editors who worked on the project, over a period of a thousand years. Just think about that for a minute. There are parts of the Bible, such as Genesis chapter 1, that were around as oral tradition from long before the time of Moses. That's a very long time ago. And then you have a biography like the one in front of you that we call Matthew that dates to just a decade or two after Jesus. And this library, all that to say, this is written in another time, in another place, literally on the other side of the world, actually on two or three continents, in another language and a whole other like cultural frame and reference. And yet, it's the best-selling book of all time. And here we are, millennia later, with it open in our lap. There's something about this collection of writings that we keep coming back to. Why? Well, because it is, at its core, about the human condition. Everything is in here. Love, hate, war, the futility of violence to solve human problems, injustice, what happens to a society with a widening gap between the rich and the poor, and hint, it does not go well. What happens when the church gets in bed with the empire? That does not go well either. Trauma and healing, the meaning and purpose of life, mortality, how short all of it is, what to do with mold in your kitchen, because that's just really helpful at times to have an ancient writing about that, how to discipline your toddler, sex in pretty much every single variety, the end of the world, doubt, unbelief, faith, doctrine, dogma, it's pretty much all in here. And we're living at a key inflection point in the history of the church in the West, where a growing number of people, if we're honest about it, actually have quite a bit of a problem with the Bible. Either they don't read it because it's boring and it's weird and it's hard to get your head around or just I have an iPhone and Wi-Fi or whatever it is, 
or they read it, but they don't understand it. It's, it's, it's really quite hard to understand, in particular, millennia later in another language and another culture. Or they read it and they understand it for the most part, but to be honest, they take issue with it. The Old Testament in particular, there's a lot of gnarly stuff in there, violence and abuse, and there are laws that regulate slavery and put a price on men and women and children, and and even in the New Testament, there's quite a few things that are radically at odds with our day and age. And so some of us open this thing up, my guess is a lot of us open this thing up and feel a little bit lost. All that to say, this next section in the Sermon on the Mount just might be one of the most important teachings of Jesus for our cultural moment, because it's essentially Jesus' take on the Bible. If you ever thought to yourself, I wonder what Jesus thinks about the Bible? Well, look no further than the passage right in front of you. And in it, we kind of figure out how, as apprentices of Jesus, we are to read the Bible um, like Jesus. Let's work through it line by line. Have a look one more time at 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Um, That's a little bit alien and strange language to us, the law or the prophets. Keep in mind that the Bible you have in front of you did not exist in Jesus' day. All they had was the Old Testament, and it wasn't put together in a codex like the one in front of you. It was a scroll here, a scroll there at the synagogue, not in your home or whatever. They called it the scriptures, but another popular name was the law or the prophets because it was grouped into two or three categories. The law, or in Hebrew, it was the word Torah, um, which can be translated either law or I think a better translation is teaching. And the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, it's a great reading. Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, Then the prophets was the next category, and that was both what we call the history writing. So if you've you've ever read the Bible, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all of that. And then what we think of as the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who is crazy, by the way, but really smart. And then there was a third category that Jesus doesn't mention here, but he quotes in other places called the writings. And that at the head of that was the Psalms and the Hebrew wisdom literature, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And then I hate to use the word junk drawer, but it was kind of like the odds and ends of what was left of what we now call the Old Testament. So when you read here, the law or the prophets, think in your mind's eye, the Bible or in particular, what we now call the Old Testament. And Jesus' line here is, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, or the Bible or the Old Testament. That word abolish is katalusai in Greek, and it's used later in Matthew for destroying or dismantling a building or institution. When used of the Bible in the first century, it was actually a technical term that meant to disobey, and in doing so, to disrespect the Bible. So apparently, we don't know the backstory here, but apparently Jesus' teaching was so radical, so kind of subversive to mainstream society that some people thought Jesus had come to abolish the Bible. And he has to say, do not think, no, that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to, notice, fulfill them. Now, here's a little twist, a little surprise. What's the opposite of to abolish or to disobey? To obey or to like, you know, um, hold the status quo. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? You would think Jesus says, I've not come to abolish them, but to, you know, obey them or to kind of keep things the way they are. And all the good religious conservatives in the room say, yes, great. 
But instead, Jesus has this unique little word here to fulfill them. In Greek, it's pleurosi. It's a word used all through Matthew's gospel for a pattern or a prophecy from the Old Testament coming to pass in and through Jesus. For example, Matthew chapter 26. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then, notice, would the scriptures be, and there it is, fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Or just a paragraph or two later, in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out to me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me, but this has all taken place that, notice, the writings of the prophets, again, another name for the Bible, might be, and there's our word, fulfilled. So think about it. Apparently, for Jesus, the Torah wasn't God's last word to his people, or the Old Testament. It was more of a hold-me-over until his coming. Jesus here is beating up on both the ancient version of kind of liberalism or progressivism where you abolish or you disobey the Bible and the standard kind of first century conservative Jewish way of reading the Bible. Jesus is doing something else, a fresh, new, creative way of reading the Bible in light of his coming. 18, for truly I tell you, now that phrase in Greek is amen, lego, hymen, and it's a little catchphrase that is unique to Jesus. This right here is the first of 30 times that it's used in Matthew alone. It was Jesus' way of saying, hey, listen up, this next part is important, and it might come as a surprise to some of you. So he has that, truly I tell you, then until heaven and earth disappear, it's a figure of speech, like forever, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. There's all sorts of ways to translate the Greek here. I like this one, not one dot of an I, not one cross of a T will drop out from the law or not the tiniest hook on a letter, think of a little serif, but it's the KJV for the win. One jot or one tittle will shall in no wise pass from the law. Because you do not want to miss or lose out on your jot or your tittle. Why does that sound dirty to me? I, I don't know. This is cool. Let me nerd out on you for a second. The word here that is translated the smallest letter in the NIV is referring to the Hebrew letter Yod. So here's a picture of the Hebrew alphabet. And um, where is Yod on this one? We just swapped it right before this gathering. Da, 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 right there, number 10. It's essentially about the same size as an apostrophe. And then that word, it's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then that word that is translated the least stroke of a pen is referring to a little like serif that is used to distinguish, let me see, look at number 20 there, the final calf from, look down at 200, the raish. So notice how similar that is. There's literally like one little indentation to the right, one little serif. Jesus is saying that the Bible, down to its smallest detail, will last until everything is, and then there's that word, accomplished. Again, this word is a twist. It's a surprise. The Greek can be translated until everything is accomplished or until it all happens or until it all comes true. If you're sitting there in Jesus' first century synagogue or on the side of the hill, you're thinking, wait a minute, until um, what is accomplished? 
Until what happens? Until what comes true? Apparently, this whole thing that we now call the Old Testament was a signpost that was pointing forward to something or someone else. And Jesus is saying, actually, it's me and it's my kingdom. Keep reading. 19. Therefore, so here's the point. Therefore, anyone, which means anyone, who sets aside, um, the Greek word here for sets aside is luo. It can be translated to set aside or to relax or to loosen up a bit. One of the least of these commands. Now, pause. Need to just get pedantic on you for a minute. The question here is what commands is Jesus referring to? Is he pointing backward to the commands in the Old Testament? Or is he pointing forward to the commands that he is about to give in the Sermon on the Mount? And the consensus is both, because the Sermon on the Mount is essentially Jesus teaching the Old Testament. By these commands, he means his way of reading the Bible. So anyone who sets aside or relaxes or just kind of has this laissez-faire attitude where you explain away the bits and the pieces of the Bible that you don't like, if that's your way of reading the Bible, you will be called, and here he says, least. And there's a play on words here. The, anyone who sets aside the least of these commands will be called what? Least. So there is some kind of a reciprocal relationship between how you treat the Bible and your experience of the kingdom of God. Okay, more on that at the end. On the flip side, notice the next line, but whoever practices and teaches these commands. So you don't kind of shrug it off or explain it away or pick and choose. No, you take it really seriously. You read the, way, the Bible the way Jesus does and you practice it. You don't just have it in your head. You practice it. And then once you kind of get a bitter piece down, you teach other people how to practice it. Then you will be called what? Great in the kingdom of heaven. That's so cool. But is Jesus done? No, is that the end of the paragraph? No, it would be really easy to think that Jesus is just saying, all right, everybody, um, so make sure that you read your Bible every single day in the coming week and do what it says. Have a great week. But Jesus is not done. Keep reading. 20, for I tell you, there it is again, that unless your righteousness, and unless if you grew up in the 90s, that's not really a word that we use anymore, Um, but righteousness is a very first century Jewish word that basically means like goodness. Unless your righteousness or your goodness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, here's the like, the zinging one line, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What in the heck is Jesus saying here? Well, if you know anything, like here's a little bit of background. The teachers of the law, or your translation might have scribes, were professional students and teachers of the Bible. So if you've ever read the Bible before, it's okay if you've not, give it a shot. It takes about a decade. You, you know that it's very complex and hard to understand at times. So then, as now, there were a group of people whose job was to study and teach the Bible full time. The Pharisees were a much larger group to which many, if not most, of the scribes belonged that was more of like a sect inside first century Judaism, kind of like um, Pentecostalism or evangelicalism or Calvinism or whatever today. Now we think of, if you've ever read the four gospels before, maybe if you grew up in the church, we kind of have this image in our mind's eye of a Pharisee as like a mean and nasty, kind of stupid religious bigot or whatever. That is honestly a gross misreading. They were quite intelligent 
and um, they were really well respected by men and women all over Israel for their meticulous passion for obedience to the Torah. That it's argued by a number of scholars that either Jesus himself was a Pharisee, and what you're reading here is insider critique, or the reason that he's beating up all the time on the Pharisees and like in tangle after tangle is because that was the group inside first century Judaism that he most identified with. Either way, this would have been shocking. This would have been like Jesus today, and it doesn't quite work, but Jesus saying, unless your righteousness or your goodness surpasses that of Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or Dallas Willard or Gerald Griffin or whoever, like then you will certainly not, like notice the double emphatic there, certainly not enter the kingdom of God. It's like, wait, what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that we have to be even more meticulous in our obedience to the Torah? And you're like, I've read the Torah. That does not sound fun at all. Now, no, that's not the case. And I could go into that why, and that becomes clear the more you read the gospel. But to make sense of this, you have to realize that Jesus is talking about righteousness on a whole other level, not just the surface level righteousness of behavior, but deeper than that at a heart level. So in the next part of the sermon, Jesus lays out six examples that we'll look at um, one week at a time over the summer. And they all start with this little formula. You have heard it said, and then there's a quote from the Old Testament, but I say to you, and then you get a little teaching of Jesus of Nazareth on that Old Testament line, all right? And each example is a case study that is essentially doing two things. First, it's kind of teaching you Jesus' way of reading the Bible. So as you work through kind of example by example, and it will take all summer, but as you work through it, you start to pick up a feel for, oh, that's kind of like how Jesus reads the Bible. And there are like some commands that he says, no, that's valid and for today. And then there are other commands that the Kiana does this nuance thing and like look at the heart behind and pay attention to the trajectory that command was on. You're like, oh, now I get it. But secondly, each example is a great example of the kind of righteousness that Jesus is getting at that goes much deeper than behavior. So his first example that we'll talk about next week, and I don't want to give it away, um, but if you want next week's sermon in a sentence, here it is, is basically he says, he has this teaching on the command to not murder. And he essentially says that the command to not murder is dealing with a much deeper problem in the human condition, and that is a heart posture of contempt for other people. And so you can read the Ten Commandments and say, oh yeah, do thou shalt not murder, if you have the King James, and say, no problem, check, done, right? I'm watching, I got sucked in on vacation to the People versus O.J. Simpson. So like, it's so good, oh my gosh, it's crazy. I'm 14 again in my mind's eye. But um, you can say, I'm not OJ, like I'm not a murderer, I'm okay. And listen, you can still have a heart that is full of contempt and spite and poison and bitterness and anger and an arrogant condescension that thinks you are better than everybody else that is just this infection at the core level of your being. And you can keep that commandment really, really well. Jesus is saying, that's not enough. I'm at, after something more. He's saying, listen, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you can't just read the Bible and obey all of its commands. That's not a bad thing. 
but you need even more. You need the ideas that the Bible is getting at to seep into your heart and to transform you from the inside out into a whole other kind of human being whose driving motivation is love. So, to summarize everything that we just covered there in 17 to 20, here's my paraphrase of the text. My, this is like my wannabe Eugene Peterson movement moment, all right? Don't worry, there's no, I'm not about to publish a Bible, but this is my live vicariously. Don't think for one minute that I came to throw out the Bible or even the Old Testament. Nothing could be further from the truth. I came to take the story to its climax. This might surprise you, but it's very true. The Bible, down to its smallest details, the cross of a T or the dot of an I, will never fall from its place of importance and influence. As long as there's a universe, there will be a Bible. Instead, everything the Old Testament points forward to will come to pass. In fact, it's already started through my life and work. So here's my point. God's treatment of you will mirror and mimic your treatment of the Bible. If you take even one odd, obscure command from the Bible, and more specifically, my teachings in and on the Bible, and you explain it away or ignore it or do some hermeneutical gymnastics to make it say what you want it to say, you'll relegate yourself to the margins in the kingdom of God. You'll never reach your full potential. But if you take the Bible, and more specifically, my teachings in and on the Bible, seriously, then it will set you on the road to transformation, and you will grow and mature into a great one in the beautiful new world that's coming into being. Now, before we end, as I said before, I believe this teaching of Jesus is more important now than ever. You know, a lot of people don't realize it, but we are living right in the middle of a crisis in the Western church. And at its root, it is a crisis over the Bible. There's all sorts of debate and controversy in the church right now on a number of issues. Of course, around sexuality and gender and marriage, not to mention on the other side, gun control and military violence, and then what both sides have in common, money and the growing gap between the rich and the poor. The issue behind all of the other issues is the Bible. And more specifically, the question, is the Bible authoritative? And I know a lot of you are allergic to that word, so just stay with me for a minute. Is it authoritative or not? And if the answer is yes, in what way? This is a library and it's complex and it's hard to wrap your head around and most of it's story. In what way is a story authoritative and so on? Now this crisis is part of a much larger crisis in Western culture as a whole over authority in general. Charles Taylor, that eminent sociologist of a generation ago, said that we have moved the last 500 years in the West from a culture of authority where 500 years ago your lifestyle was rooted in the authority that was based on um, the king if you were in a monarchy and the church, which was kind of the Bible and tradition of interpretation, and then the family, from a, a culture of authority to what he called a culture of authenticity. And I like that language, where it's all about be true to yourself, don't let anybody tell you what to do, trust your feelings, Luke. That whole, like, that's the world that I, you grew up and you're like a four-year-old, and you're like, yes, trust your feeling, turn off the laser guy, like, yes. That's, that's what you were raised into, right? That's the cultural value that you were raised into. And so more and more, this idea of living under the authority of an ancient library of books is borderline absurd 
in our anti-authoritarian culture that defines freedom, or I would argue misdefines freedom, as the ability to do whatever the heck you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And so our culture right now is just starting to learn the hard way what happens when you just set aside like Jesus and much less like the religion of Christianity. Just set that aside for a moment. Think about whatever your issue is of choice. Um, the redefinition of sexuality and marriage is a great one. Think about the fact that we are throwing out thousands of years of the cumulative effect of human wisdom across pretty much every single major religion, every single moral system, every culture, East and West. We're setting all of that aside over a period of about two or three decades since rock and roll, and there's a tie in there, but I gotta love my rock and roll. We're setting all of that aside to say that we know better because we live in a culture, in particular a city like Portland, that buys into what sociologists call the myth of progress, that newer equals better, and out of the enlightenment, we have this running narrative that says we are enlightened, we have evolved past that ancient way of being human, and now we know better. And our culture is just starting to realize, oh, Maybe we don't actually know better. Maybe there, was, maybe there was something to that. Maybe there's a reason this is not how it's been done for thousands of years. Maybe this isn't enlightenment or evolution. Maybe it's, it's Genesis chapter 3 all over again. I mean, that story about the snake, it's not a story about the snake. It's a story about the human condition, the root primal temptation that every man or woman faces and that is, will you define for yourself good and evil? Or will you say, there is a creator and I'm a creation, and he knows far better than me? We're driving in the car the other day. Moses, our eight-year-old, who's just a little bit crazy, but so much fun. He's just staring out of the window, and he's a bit quiet, and he's introvert, and he's in his head. And he just says to Tammy, I'm so mad right now. Tammy says, what are you mad about? And he's like, so mad at Adam and Eve. <laughs> and what did he say? Like, if, if they hadn't sinned, I would be perfect. <laughs> so, so clearly, uh, somehow fundamentalism got into his interpretation of the Bible. I, I, it was not me, I promise. It was not me. But... We, the reality is, if it wasn't Adam and Eve, it would have been their children or their children. Or their, all of us have, have that moment. Whether you want to read that story as history or... We all have that moment when we're faced with a decision. You fill in the blank what it is about you. A moral decision, a social decision, a spiritual decision. And we have a choice to either define for ourselves good from evil based on the little voice in our head or the loud voice in our culture or to trust in God, in his character, and in his word, say there's a creator and it's not me. I'm creation, I'm built, I'm designed, I'm free, I'm free, I'm not a robot, I'm free. But there's intentionality in my humanity. And there is thousands of years now of wisdom, not just human wisdom, but divine wisdom, to navigate my humanity and to grow and to mature. All that to say, this is really hard to get to in our day and age. So I'll make this fast, but just before, before I wrap up and pray, just notice a few things. We work through the text, just notice a few things about Jesus' take on the Bible. Notice first off, 
that for Jesus, the Bible is a story that reaches its climax in his life. Like, let me do the math for you. Um, I think it's interesting. 43% of the Bible is um, story. By that, I mean narrative. And 33% is poetry. So just think about that. That's about 80% of the Bible in front of you is either a story or a poem. Right? All sorts of implications for authority and everything, sociology. Then you have less than 20% now that is in kind of a letter or a teaching or the Sermon on the Mount, if you actually were to add up the commands in the Bible, or if you want to stay cynical, like the rules and regulations in the Bible, you're well into the single digits. I don't have the exact number, but you're well, I think it's really low. You're well into the single digits. And so Jesus reads this thing in front of you, not as like an encyclopedia of truth with like a laundry list of commands and rules and regulations in it, but as a story stretching over thousands of years, and there are commands all through that story. Some of those commands make sense for all time. Others make sense for an earlier part of the story, but not for a later part of the story, not because they were bad, but because they were for then and not for now. So Paul's metaphor in Galatians, when he's wrestling with how followers of Jesus read the Old Testament, in particular the Torah, is this metaphor of a tutor, or um, I think in our culture, more like a nanny, which was responsible in a wealthy household to raise or a son or daughter for the master. And his point is that the Old Testament command are kind of like the tutor to grow you and mature you. So think about it. There are rules, if you want, or commands when you are young that are good things. So when you're two years old and the rule is go to bed at 7 p.m., that's a great rule. It's a great command from mom or dad. When you're 25, it's not quite as helpful. In fact, if you were to obey it, um, that you're kind of lazy, no offense, but like you should like maybe do something with your life. You know, seven is not all that late. And it's not that it's a bad command. It's a great command for a two-year-old. It's not such a great command for a mature adult. Does that make sense? There are commands like that in the Bible, um, whether that be all sorts of things in the Torah that were great for then to grow Israel into maturity. It's the whole point of the Bible in general, but are not forever. And then there are other commands that are forever. Um, and it takes wisdom to know the difference. You need some kind of an interpretive key so you don't just pick and choose the ones you like and dislike. And that's where as a follower of Jesus, we just make the decision. Our interpretive key goes by the name of Jesus. And it's the Sermon on the Mount and the writings of the New Testament. That's how we know what to keep forever, such as a command to not check up, and what to like move on from, such as a command around circumcision or pork or shellfish or whatever it is. You're like, yes, thank you. I have my, I don't know, Sizzler comes to mind. Is that still a thing? I have not been to Sizzler in like 25 years. That's just in my mind. I don't think that's from the Holy Spirit, or maybe it is. And even Jesus is like, oh, Sizzler, so good. <laughs> the lemon. For Jesus, the Old Testament was dynamic, not static. There, there's a, a, an inertia to it, a forward motion. It was always going somewhere. It's a story. And for Jesus, this is, the, this is like the killer point. For Jesus, it is reaching its climax in and through his life. That is a staggering claim to make. Am I right? Oh, this is a story. It's all leading up to something. What? Me. 
and my life and my teaching and my kingdom and the new, it's not an egotistical thing, the new reality that is breaking in through me. So for Jesus, first off, the Bible is a story. That said, secondly, for Jesus, the Bible is scripture. I love that line about how not the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen. Um, in another spot, Jesus is recorded as saying, the scripture cannot be broken. Have you ever read that? It's in John 10. It's just this little throwaway line. Jesus is actually in this debate with the Pharisees over an obscure Old Testament prophecy, and he's about to quote it, and he just has this little throwaway line. Oh, and by the way, the scripture cannot be broken. In another spot, in fact, on a regular basis, Jesus would say this little formula, the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David, or whatever Old Testament author, and then a quote from the Old Testament. Later in the New Testament, um, Paul writes about how the scriptures were inspired, is the English word that's used in the NIV. In Greek, it's theopanousto, and it more literally means, it's like a made-up word. It more literally means breathed out by God. Peter has this great line I just read a few days ago. He writes about, I don't think when you're reading the Old Testament that, and he essentially says, don't think this was just made up by a human being or quote, by human will, but prophets spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that. So there's some dynamic here when you read the scripture. It is human. There's a human writer um, with a human brain and opinion and bias and a theological system and a culture and a body of scientific knowledge. Most of the time, not that much. It's a long time ago. There's a human. But then at the same time, it's more than that. It was inspired by God. It was breathed by God. Not in the sense that, you know, Matthew or whoever there is like in a Stephen King horror movie trance, like this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of like, that's creepy. We don't believe that. But here's Matthew with intelligence and creativity and a body of knowledge and an eyewitness account and a scroll or two or ten open in front of him and an interview like a journalist with this person. Okay, I missed that day. I was on vacation. What exactly happened again with the, the pig thing? That's really weird. I want to make sure I get this right. And there's, there's this thing, but yet at the same time it was inspired like God was at work in and through Matthew or whoever it was to write more than a collection of documents, but to write scripture. To Jesus, this scripture, it's true. It's words like an errant or infallible, I for one don't find helpful. They're not used anywhere in the New Testament or in church history until about 100 years ago, and they come with a set of assumptions that are very modern and very Western, some of which are not even true. But what Jesus is saying is that this is true and it's trustworthy. It's more than just a human thing. This is scripture. Third, for Jesus, the Bible is in constant need of debate, dialogue, rethinking, rereading in order to get back to the heart of it. Jesus, and we'll read as I said over the summer, lays out six examples of how to read the Bible and in each example he's beating up not on the Bible itself but on a popular interpretation of the Bible at that time. You realize really fast, Jesus is all about context and nuance and the heart behind and the complexity of the library of scripture. And he wants his apprentices to take the time to wrestle with it, whether we're bookish or not. That doesn't mean you have to read four hours a day, but he wants you to take the time. Often we don't think of the Sermon on the Mount this way, but this is a Bible teaching from a Bible teacher. Jesus is a rabbi. That's a Hebrew word meaning Bible teacher. And this is Jesus just wrestling with the Old Testament. What's valid? What's not? What do we jettison or move on from? Not because it was bad, but because it was for a time. What do we hang? Like this is Jesus just wrestling with his apprentices over the Bible. 
And finally, for Jesus, the Bible wasn't just meant to be read and believed, but to be lived. And I just need to say that over and over again, even though it's not rocket science. Um, At a math level, one-fifth of the Sermon on the Mount is about doing what it actually says. Imagine if like every fifth line in one of my teaching was, and make sure you go do it this week. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and make sure you go do it this week. Da-da-da-da-da, and make sure you go do it this week. Jesus begins, I've said this before, begins and ends the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of practice. We just read the first one right there. Um, Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great. And then the very last line, kind of the summary of his whole thing on the law and the prophets is a beautiful story, that beautiful parable where Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, be like a person built the house of his or her life on a foundation. But whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, nah, it's not my thing, I don't think I buy it. It goes the other way. Jesus is driving the point home that the Bible is a means to an end, and the end is not information, but transformation. It's not enough to read this and study it and take notes at church and nerd out to the Bible Project podcast every week, which is fantastic, by the way, seriously good. But at some point, you have to turn off the podcast Put your notepad away and go out with your community empowered by the Spirit and live it. Now, all sorts of interesting things about Jesus' way of reading the Bible. I'm well aware that in our day and age, this sounds crazy to some of you, right? And some of you are just like, I am so not there. I have a list of questions about the Bible stretching like to Florida and back twice. Um, And I am just not there yet. That's okay. I get it. This is very far from the status quo of our culture. This is a safe place for you to process, ask questions, wrestle, doubt, believe, unbelieve. It's great. Welcome to the family. But just before we wrap up, notice what's at stake. At some point, you have to land when it comes to that. Just notice what's at stake. If you reject Jesus' way of reading the Bible, And instead, in his language, you set aside one of the least of these commands and teach others accordingly. You pick and choose with the Bible, and you construct your version that kind of lines up with your opinion and bias and culture, whether on issues from the left, like sexuality or gender or marriage, or issues from the right, like military violence. Jesus will make both sides angry by the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Either way, if you play Thomas Jefferson with the Bible, and you cut it up into your amalgamation. Notice that Jesus um, does not threaten you with hell. There's no like spittle out of Jesus' mouth and like whip, like none of that. He does not threaten you at all, but there is, he does warn you of what will happen. And what is that? Well, you will be called least in the kingdom. As I said before, um, there is some kind of a reciprocal relationship between how you treat the Bible and your life outcome. It seems like Jesus is saying that life's treatment of you, or maybe even God's treatment of you, will mirror and mimic your treatment of the Bible. Okay, if if that's right, then wow, just think about that for a minute and let that sink in. And it kind of makes sense, right? If the Bible is scripture, if it's a story and all, but it's like inspired by God, and in it is a, a map, for lack of a better word, to like a whole new way to be human, and it's from God to you, and like you shrug it off, you relax it, you explain it away, you do your, you dishonor it, then don't expect God to honor you. 
If you sideline it and you push it to the side, whether because you don't like it or just you don't have time for it and you have an iPhone, don't expect God to put you in front and center in the kingdom, in his new reality. If you don't read it, don't listen to it, don't believe it, don't expect God to speak to you. There is some kind of a reciprocal relationship. Why? Because whether we like it or not, and most of us don't like this, myself included, our relationship to God is tied up at least a bit with our relationship to the Bible. Why is that? Because the Bible is how the authority of Jesus is mediated to his apprentices. Like, just think about it. It's the best line of reasoning that I know of. The Bible is how the authority of Jesus is mediated to his apprentices. I love this little quote from Andrew Wilson. It's a great little book on the Bible. He writes, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. You all get the logic there, right? I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, well, then I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Our obedience to the commands of the New Testament is an expression of our obedience to Jesus. Right? This central, and we don't like this language, obedience, authority, I'm just like going for all the greatest hits right now. But the central creed of the church through church history is Jesus is Lord. The central message of Jesus of Nazareth was the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. To say that Jesus is Lord or I live in the kingdom of God and then not to obey the teachings of Jesus in and through the Bible is to give lip service and hypocrisy at best and nothing more. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say, there's a creator, I am creation, you know better. Let me live into your vision of human flourishing because I trust you more than I trust the other source or my own whatever. I trust you that you know the path to life. You know the path to life. I trust you for that. And notice though, and I love this, Jesus doesn't just have a warning. Hey, how you treat the Bible, it really matters. But also he has an invitation If, rather than pick and choose with the Bible, rather, as followers of Jesus, we follow his way of reading the Bible and then practice it and teach others to practice it, what will happen? We will be called great in the kingdom. Now, when you hear great, don't think like great in the Kardashian sense of, you know, fame or celebrity status or more followers on Twitter. That's not what Jesus is getting at at all. He's saying that if you take the Bible, and in particular Jesus' teachings in and on the Bible, as a map for the road to character, and you follow it one day at a time, then over the course of your life, you will grow and mature into a great one, a bright, shining example of all that Jesus and his kingdom stand for, transformed, set free, healthy, made whole at a soul level where you wake up in the morning and there is the undercurrent, the throb in your heart of love and joy and peace. That is what is on offer in apprenticeship to Jesus and his way. So a warning and an invitation and a Bible in your lap. What will you do with it? Let's stand and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way. 
a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All our resources are completely free, thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for today's episode goes to Brett from Waco, Texas, Sonia from Stillwell, Kansas, Samuel from Clinton, Illinois, Luke from Leland Grove, Illinois, and Joshua from El Cerrito, California. Thank you all so much. To join The Circle or learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org.